0: Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope to Timothy my true son of the faith grace mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord the purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart a clear conscience and a genuine faith. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance Jesus, Came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. Command and teach these things. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Grace be with you all. Before we jump back into First Timothy, just a couple of things I wanted to reiterate. One, you saw on the video the announcement about the Life Prep marriage class. And I really want to encourage this. So many times I see couples who kind of wait till there's a crisis before they reach out for help. And so you may think, well, our marriage is great. We don't need any kind of marriage class. Well, I encourage you to jump in and encourage other people who may be there who are struggling or maybe have some things that Just aren't resolved, they need to talk about. And as I said in the video, we're going to keep these groups to about eight people total. And so it's going to be really, really discussion based and it's going to be very Bible based. We're going to look what the scriptures say about marriage and then have discussions out of that. And so I hope that you'll be a part of that. And just on this idea of marriage, I'd like to just give away a little book today. It's called What Radical Husbands Do and recommended by. Jerry Edson right here, and we did this in our fight club, and it was a, a really, really great book. And so if you have your bulletin, it's under your seat. Every other seat has a bulletin. If you feel like stretching down there uh, and reaching and grabbing that, and if you have a number on the back, uh, there's number number one through five, so I knew I would get at least one of these numbers. So uh, does anybody have number one? It's circled on the back of the bulletin near the top. Does anybody have number one on the bulletin? All right. Going once, going twice. All right, number two. All right, number two right there, Adam. Come on up here, Adam. Grab this book. It's great practical wisdom. Brittany will be happy you read this. So, again, we're back in 1 Timothy today. Let's pray and then we'll uh, look into the scripture. God, we thank you so much for Grace Church. We thank you for the uh, believers that you've assembled here and those who you've sent out, like Buzz, who just is able to just tell us just a, an incredible story of a mission and an opportunity and, and God how that we can impact a group of people so many miles away that we'll never lay eyes on properly uh, but God we can really make a difference in their lives and we thank you for the church stepping up and helping with that cause God and thank you for Graham and Kelsey again just uh, their testimony of how Grace Church has encouraged their marriage encouraged their spiritual life God and I pray that we'll all be encouraged through your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to ask you a few questions, all right? So don't raise your hand on most of these. You can on the first few because they're not as serious. But I want you to think about this for a second. Do you believe that a 18-wheel semi-truck, if it was headed right toward you, if it hit you, it would cause serious injury or death? Do Do you believe that to be the case? Is there anybody here invincible? All right, so you all would agree that would be the case. So if the truck was coming at you, you would move out of the way, correct? Because you believe that if it hit you, it would cause some serious damage or death. So we believe that, all right? So we know that to be true. Well, let's think about another thing that we probably most of us agree would be true. We would agree that bodily exercise, doing something with our body every few days, is really good and beneficial, not just to your health, but it's also good for you mentally. It's good for your mental health. It's good, it makes you feel better. How many of you would agree with that? Can I shake your head? Yeah, would you agree with that to be true? Okay, so what if I then follow up with this? Don't raise your hand. How many of you consistently exercise three to five times a week? And so I would guess there would be a discrepancy between the first question and the second question. Well, let me ask you another one. Do you believe that God, through prayer, is a need that you have more than your morning coffee? Do you believe that going to God in prayer is more critical to your day than your morning coffee? So how was your prayer time this morning? Or any morning? You see, sometimes we say we believe something, but our actions don't always back that up. And we may believe something, and our actions don't back it up. How about this one, final one? Like Paul in Philippians 4.11, Do you believe that you can experience joy and contentment, even like him when he was writing, he was in a Roman prison cell, rats, disgusting smells, terrible situation, but he finds contentment even in that situation. Do you believe, Paul, when he says that God can give you that kind of contentment and peace? Well, if you believe your Bible, you're going to shake your head and say, yes, I believe that. But do you believe that God can give you contentment And peace when you open the mailbox and there's another medical bill there that you have to pay. Or something smaller where you're in a hurry and the Walmart lines are super long. And you're waiting there and you're like, I don't feel very content here. Or you're watching the news, right? And seeing the world and the troubles. Do you find contentment in that situation? Because Paul said, I can find contentment in any situation. And he's in a prison cell. So surely we can experience that as well at some level. So the point is, clear, that our faith, what we say we believe, and what we do don't always match up to one another. And so we learn from that there can be varying degrees of faith. Faith isn't an all or nothing kind of thing, but it does tell us one thing, and this is it. Your actions reveal the strength and the reality of your faith. Say that again, it's going to be on the screen for you. Your Actions reveal the strength and the reality of your faith. So think about your actions for a second. What does it say about your faith? What does it say about the strength of your faith? Let that sink in because we often can talk a big talk, but we don't really live it out. And that's exactly what's happening in First Timothy. And now we continue another passage where Paul's dealing with the topic of widows, which maybe isn't super relevant for us today. But the concepts behind what he's saying are critical and they're timeless. And some of us maybe fall into these situations where they're actually very practical. So, 1 Timothy 5, we're going to start with verse 8. Paul writes, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He's denied the faith, and it's, he's worse than an unbeliever. These words were meant to shock, plain and simple. In Ephesus, people had come into the faith community, and, and, the, and the church was booming there. I mean, things were going incredibly well. God was adding to the church. People were getting excited. They were getting on board. And apparently, there were some who thought their church relationships were more important than their family relationships, and in fact, they began to nullify their responsibilities in their biological families, I guess in light of the fact that they had this new family, which the church is a family. But Paul says, not so fast. He says, the faith of Jesus Christ is about loving God and loving other people, including, especially including, your own family members. And so Paul has to write guidelines to give to Timothy, so that the church can be wise in how it deals in these kind of situations of helping the widows, helping those who are in need, helping the orphans. And in this case, he's saying you can't say that you have faith and ignore your own family, even if you're doing other good things, serving the church, ministering to the church. And so Paul wants them to be wise, and, and we talked about this a lot last week, he wants them to be wise with their resources because the church is to be generous, but it's not to be foolish. We're to be very generous, but we're not to be just indiscriminate and just giving away our resources with no rhyme or reason or plan. And so Paul comes down hard in those in the church who are ignoring their family responsibilities, yet expecting the church to pick up the slack and to cover for them. And so he says, you can say that you love Jesus. You can say you follow Christ. You can say you believe in him. But the reality is, when you ignore the needs of your own family, he says, you're denying that faith. What just doesn't add up? It just doesn't make sense that you say, I I love Jesus, but then you deny the faith by not taking care of your family. And he says in verse 8, look at the verse again. He says, not only have they denied the faith, he says, you're worse than an unbeliever. What does he mean by that? You're worse than an unbeliever. Because even the world has a higher standard than that. Even the world is going to care for those in their own household, their whole family, own family. So there's this blind spot they had. They, they thought that, that their relationships and their commitment to the church was more important than their commitment to the family. Now, this isn't specifically what the text is talking about here, but I think it's important application that we can relate to it. I saw this a lot growing up in churches. I saw people in ministry, people who are deacons and leaders in the church, who gave all their energy to the church and had nothing left for their own family around the dinner table or at night to spend time in in the Word with them. Yet they would come to church and they would put on a good talk. They would seem like they had it all together. They would be active serving and ministering and making a difference in the body. But when it came to their own family, they had nothing. They were incapable of even sharing Christ or really leading any kind of significant prayer. And I saw pastors, and I, I knew pastor's son growing up in a church culture, going to a Christian college. I, I, I talked to pastor's kids who said, you know, my dad's not the same on Sunday as he is on Monday through Saturday. And obviously, we all struggle with this, this, this idea of hypocrisy and always living out what we say. But there should be some evidences in our life, through every area of our life, that our faith is sincere. Especially in our own household, and especially as we minister to those closest to us. And so he says, the unbelieving world does a better job than this. So he says, it's a denial of your faith. Now, a couple things more about faith here. This is important. Scripture teaches that we don't lose our salvation, okay? Somebody who's truly in Christ, it's not about you working or making the effort, and then hopefully you measure up, and then God will let you into his family, Faith is the only instrument by which we lay hold of the righteousness of Christ. It's the only way that we do that, but that in itself is not a work. This is not something that we muster up. It's not a force, but it's the channel which God uses to save. And, and, and what do I mean by that? May, let me illustrate it to help you out here for a second, all right? So how many of you washed your car yesterday? Anybody washed your car yesterday? Wow, lazy church, right? Nobody washed your car, right? So how many of you have ever washed your car with a water hose before, with a hose before? All right, so you literally took a hose and you washed your car with it, right? You washed your car with a hose. No, that's silly, right? You washed your car with water that flowed through a hose. The hose was the mechanism by which you used, but the water and a little bit of work, right, did the washing. And so the same thing is with with faith is faith is the means But the work is of God in his grace. And so faith itself is not something that we can muster up. But see, a lot of denominations and some uh, prominent, prominent um, churches teach that it's a combination of our faith and our works then that cause salvation to happen. That it says that combine our faith and good works and that's the means for justification. Scripture flat out does not teach that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it's by grace you've been saved, through faith, not of yourself. It's it's not by works, it's a gift of God, lest we boast or brag about that. And so this idea of justification, which means simply that God declares you righteous at salvation, that when you put your faith in Christ, he declares you righteous. He says you stand wholly perfect before God, not because of what you did, but what Jesus did. And see, it's the object of your faith that saves you. It's not the faith itself. The object of your faith is Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate that for a second. You can have all the faith in the world in a very impressive looking boat that has a hole in the bottom. Or you can have very weak faith in a boat that may not look as nice, but it's seaworthy. Where, Where are you better off at? You're much better off with the weak faith in a boat that's seaworthy than a very impressive looking boat that has a hole in the bottom, and so it's the object of our faith that matters, not the faith itself. And as we saw from those beginning illustrations, that faith is degrees. I mean, there's not all or nothing here. And Jesus talked to the disciples about how they could increase their faith. They asked him, "How do we grow in our faith? How do we increase our faith?" He called. He he referred to some people as having weak faith, and some. Uh, in fact, one guy he said, "I believe." To Jesus, I believe, but he said, but help my unbelief. He says, I believe, but I'm not totally there yet. God, help me, Jesus, to get fully on board with trusting you. So it's not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves us. And so how do we increase our faith? How do we make our faith stronger? God does the work. He's the one that gives the faith. But the mechanism for that, Romans 1017 faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Again, the object of the faith, the Word of Christ, the person of Christ, keeping your eyes upon Christ. Faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. The Word of Scripture wakens our faith. Faith grows by God speaking to us through His Word and revealing us to us who He is and who Jesus is through His Word. So if you want to know what you really believe and how much you believe it, look at your actions And if you realize your faith is non existent or your faith is weak, what do you do? You look at Jesus. You look to Jesus. You don't look to, I got to make more effort or more works or get busier. You look to Jesus, and out of that flows true faith. And here's the problem the problem is that many of us don't invest time in hearing the words of Jesus. Faith comes by hearing. And so we're like, I went to church on Sunday, I heard, and we think that that's going to propel us through a week that's going to bring lots of adversity, lots of difficulty, lots of conflict, all kinds of opportunities to fall and stumble in the flesh. But we think that some way Sunday is going to magically get us through that, like if we ate one meal a week, that would give us the energy to do all the things we need to do. Silly. We have to hear from God. We have to invest into his word, keeping our eyes upon Jesus. And out of that, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. God builds your faith so you can trust. And so apparently these people in the church, they were attending. They were saying some of the right things, but they weren't truly hearing from God. Because had they heard from God, they would know that I can't say I believe and yet ignore my responsibilities to my family. And Paul wants to set that straight with, with Timothy. And now he goes on as, like I said, a continuation from last week. He continues to give like very specific, very practical ways the church can use its resources wisely in order to make a difference and help these widows who were struggling in a society that didn't have any kind of assistance or welfare or social security. Look at verse 9 and 10. He says, Let a widow, Paul's writing to Timothy, Let a widow be enrolled If she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation of good works, for if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. I find it very interesting as I read this and as I studied First Timothy that the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary to ever have lived, here the, this amazing guy who penned the greatest letter that was ever written, which is the Book of Romans, the greatest letter to ever be written in history, yet he spends so much time in this passage of Scripture and in this book to Timothy about dealing and caring for widows. Why is that such a, a big deal? Why is this so important? To Paul that he spends so much ink telling Timothy what to do in this matter well a couple things one we talked about last week is God has deep compassion for those who are alone the church is to demonstrate as the hands and feet of Jesus were to demonstrate that same compassion in scripture throughout the Old Testament into the, the New Testament we see that God himself is understood to defend widows and so God cares for people he wants to work through us to help people who are in need. And then the second thing is just like Jesus said when he said, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So he says that if you truly love God throughout scripture, you're going to love other people. There's going to be a love for other people. You can't ignore people and say you love God. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. Now, if we stop there, most of us would say, I don't really hate anybody. There's nobody I truly hate. But look, he goes on. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So scripture is clear. If you love God, if you have faith in God, there's going to be more and more evidence of this through your love for other people. You can't just say, I love God and hate to be around people. You want to love people because God loves people. God cares for those who are alone, those who are weak, and you can't love God without loving people. And then the third thing is it was wasteful of the gospel resources when the church fulfills what the the duties the family should be fulfilling. When the church has to use its resources to fulfill the family's responsibility, it was a waste of the resources that were given in order to do the things God wanted them to do. If you go back to Acts, you see this back in the days of the early church. It's not the primary job of the church to organize social programs. It's not the, jo- the, church- the, jo- the job of the church to be about social gospel. And that's big and important in this day and age where there's so much emphasis in our time being put on justice, social justice. Should we be about justice? Absolutely. We have to be about justice. But the primary responsibility and duty of the church is the gospel and out of the gospel flows the ultimate justice. Because who cares if you're right with your fellow man if you're not right with God? At the end of the day, your soul goes to eternity separated from him. And so back in Acts chapter 6, when the church was booming and growing, that there was a problem. Again, the widows were being neglected. The Greek widows were being neglected. And they were upset because they saw the Jewish widows were being taken care of. But they were being neglected. And verse 2 of Acts chapter 6 says that the 12, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So he says our responsibility here is preaching the gospel, not serving tables. Doesn't mean serving tables isn't really, really critically important. But they said, we're, as the gifted ambassadors for the gospel, as the ones who have been given the commission to speak, this is the most important thing. We can't spend our time serving tables, giving food, and distributing food when we need to be out ministering. And verse 4 says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, while these other guys who they selected would be about the duty of serving the widows in need. And so it's clear in Scripture the gospel is what ultimately matters because that's what people need. That's what people need, and that's what matters most to the church. And so when a lot of churches think that, you know, it's all about just social gospel, it's all about, you know, i got to serve my fellow man, and they put all their emphasis and resources on that, our primary emphasis and research, resources must be on preaching and teaching the Word. And out of that, then the individual Believer and the church is inspired because we love God. So naturally, we're going to love people and we're going to look out for opportunities to serve other people and make a difference in other people's lives. And so, you can't say you love God and neglect needs around you. But obviously, again, there's wisdom to be involved in this process. If you've ever helped people, you know how difficult it is sometimes. To determine legitimate needs, or is this person just a freeloader trying to not work and not make an effort? And scripture is clear on that you must re- uh, require someone who's capable to work and earn their way. And so in verse nine, Paul lays this out even for widows. He, he says, Look, you gotta be a certain age. He says, Don't enroll them if they're not of a certain age, of 60 years old. And he says, You also need to examine their life. Was she faithful? When she was married to her husband, while he's still alive, was she faithful or was she sexually immoral? And then verse 10 talks about displaying Christ-like virtues and service. Was this person a servant of the church? Were they eager to be involved in the lives of other people? Again, the caution is that people were jumping on board with the church because they saw the church was this loving community, and they were distinguishing themselves from society because these people really love one another to the point where they're sacrificing and sharing their resources with one another. And so as, as today, back then, there were people who said, "I'm sign me up for that, right? I, I want this free ride as well. And back in the early days of missionary work, and I'm sure Buzz has to deal with this as well, Rice Christians, you've heard that expression, Rice Christians, is people who would um, come and convert to Christianity especially from poor countries, and they would come for food, medical services, and other benefits, but the reality was they had no interest in the gospel. They just wanted the free handouts. And so we got to be careful because these widows were on the edges, the fringes of the church life, and here are these women who were not truly devoted to God, but they were coming in and wanted to be put on this list that Paul's talking about so that they could receive the things. And so should the church... Err on the side of generosity. Many people think that. We should always err on the side of generosity, but Paul is not saying that. He's saying, look, you need to be very, very careful because with limited funds, you need to make sure that you're using them wisely. And so I think Paul here is referring to, as he's talking about this list, and he's talking about enrolling people. I think he's talking about literally like full-on support of these widows. This is not like, hey, here's you $100. Go to the grocery store and buy you some food for, that'll last for a few weeks. He, he's talking about full-on taking care of these widows who were truly widows because they had no other means, no other capability of doing that in the society if they were truly widows. And so he goes on, and he warns again. Real practical stuff. He says, don't enroll these younger widows. And he gives a couple reasons why. Verse 11, he says, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they will desire to marry. Is that a bad thing, Paul? And he, he says, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith what in the world is he talking about here is it wrong for younger women to marry the widows to marry is he instructing that to be the case no that's not what he's saying at all in fact we'll see in a second in verse 14 Paul is saying here's what what the situation is so you got this list and this list is people who need help they need assistance But it was probably even more than that. It was probably a list of people who then they devoted themselves, committed themselves to the church more fully. Like, I'm not remarrying. I'm marrying myself to Jesus, a lot like what we think of like a nun. I'm committing myself fully to Jesus. I'm taking this vow of celibacy from here on out. I will not marry. I'm going to be devoted fully and completely to the service of the church. So this list, yes, for sure, it was helping those who had needs, who could not uh, even get a meal on their own, true widows, but it was also these who were committing to the church to help in a way that they could devote all their time. So like an official kind of service, per se. And so Paul was saying, look, you ladies who made this commitment, you're younger, you made this commitment to the church, well, what happens inevitably? All right. It could be that he was referring, it seems to be that they begin to, date around if you know what I mean they began to get around that here they were younger and they committed to Jesus but all of a sudden they're getting attention they're now single and they begin to maybe be immoral or promiscuous in their life and so that's why Paul gives us this this really really serious warning in verse 12 they incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith here they were they were just out living life and doing what they wanted and maybe dating men or being with men who weren't believers. And so they would inevitably abandon their faith because of that. And so Paul's warning, he's saying, don't sign them up. Don't put them in this group of people. He says, encourage, look at verse 14. He said, I would have the younger widows to marry, to bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So he says the best thing for them to do is to find a godly man and remarry. Find you a godly man who loves Jesus, loves the faith, loves the church, and remarry, settle down, have more children. That's the command that Paul gives in verse 14. And so Paul says in verse 11 that these ladies who he enrolls that just they, they have no desire to truly be committed to Jesus. Look at verse 11 again. He said they'll be drawn away from Christ, and they'll desire to marry, and so incur the condemnation. So don't enroll them. And so the, then the second thing he says, he warns, is why not to enroll the younger women? Maybe they're not out living this promiscuous life. Maybe they're not doing those things. But look what else they could be guilty of. Verse 13. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not say. So here they are. They got lots of time on their hands. They aren't remarrying. And so they're just going around, maybe not doing the bad stuff those evil women were doing. But they're nevertheless causing dissension and division in the church because they're just gossips. They're just going from house to house, place to place. Maybe give you the name of service. Hey, can I serve you? Hey, let me tell you. You know what so-and-so, that lady she's been doing lately, I saw her with that guy, right? He's not even a believer. Really? You saw that? Yeah, and also, this is going on too. And they begin to just spread this gossip, they their busybodies. And so Paul says that instead of these women, these widows, wasting their time and just becoming meddlesome and just not being, doing anything productive and causing drama, he says, again, back in verse 14, they're to marry, they're to have children, commit themselves to dignified domestic work as opposed to this behavior that he's described in these verses. So the potential was there for these ladies who were younger to live in a way that wasn't pleasing to Christ, that would not represent Jesus well, that would not honor him or the church. And he says in verse 15, look how serious this. Some have already strayed after Satan. That seems pretty heavy, right? They're strayed after Satan. All right, so what is he saying? He's saying it brings shame upon the church. It brings shame upon the name of Christ, the reputation of Christ, the witness of Christ, the witness of the church when these ladies, particularly in this church, were acting this way. And again, it goes back to the sermon last week and the week before. We represent Jesus. We're his body. We're his hands and feet. When people see you and I in the community, they're seeing someone who claims the name of Jesus and claims to be an ambassador for Jesus. And so when they watch you, they're watching Jesus because you're Jesus' hands and feet. You're the hands and feet of our Lord. And what great responsibility. And what incredible faith that requires. And so what do you do? Do you Tomorrow do you go out and go, like, ah, man, I'm, I work with some really difficult people at work. It's really hard. i got to try really hard today. i got to really like, make full-on effort to represent Jesus well. You know what you're doing? Works. You're focusing in on the works. And faith doesn't come through works. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. So your point of action is this. I need to be with Jesus. I need to keep my eyes on Jesus. I need to have a relationship with Jesus so that the things that I say and the way that I live get closer and closer together. They become more and more consistent. And we never arrive. None of us arrive. I haven't arrived. Buzz Beecham, as amazing as he is, with the work he's doing, I can assure you that Sharon would say, you've not arrived yet, right? That's true, right? None of us have arrived. And the more that we know of the Word, and the more that we know of what God has called us to do, some ways we feel like bigger hypocrites, because we know that we're not living it all out. But hypocrisy is not trying through the strength of the Holy Spirit and working through the strength of the Holy Spirit and seeking God every day and dying to the flesh and then not executing always. As I said last week in the quote by Kevin DeYoung, that's being a hero. A hypocrite is one who says one thing and has no desire to live out what they're saying or little desire by your actions. You don't show that because you're not seeking to hear from God in His Word. And so, very simply, Action steps today Our head, The church has a duty to support true needy widows. Plain and simple. We have that duty. But you look around our culture, and you don't see a lot of people probably who fit into this situation, who don't fit this criteria. Doesn't mean we don't help. Oh, sorry, you don't measure up. You don't meet the list, so I'm not going to help you. That's not what I was saying. He's talking about a full-on support of the church. But we should be about those who God cares about. Those who are lonely, those who are isolated, those who don't have support, those who don't have physical support, financial support, or spiritual support. We should be supporting those people. The heart. Again, as faith comes, obedience will naturally flow. Love for others and a willingness to sacrifice comes by hearing the word of Christ. If we want to obey, we need to hear. If we want to respond, and to be obedient, we need a relationship with God. It takes commitment, and it takes just, honestly, it takes a routine. It takes having some systematic, intentional things put into your life, sometimes put in your life, where you can spend with God. I know some of you, it's super hard. Michelle and I have talked about this before, like when the kids are little, and you know, you got a kid on one hip, and another kid's running around crazy, and Dad's at work and, 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 you know, you're trying to read your Bible and like you're not really getting anything out of it. You know, I, I know that's super hard and it's difficult. But finding some place in your life, honestly, this is not to make you feel guilty. But if you have time to scroll Facebook. An hour a day, you got time to be in the word 10 minutes a day. If you have time to be on social media and messing around and putting stuff, you have time to be in the word. So I, I don't have like a lot of practical advice other than you've got to figure it out, what's specific for your life, for your family. But it has to be a priority because faith comes by hearing. And your faith will stay small and weak, and the results of that will be non-existent. There will be no works or little works, little good things that are happening for God's kingdom because your faith is so weak. Here, faith comes by hearing. And then finally, the hands. Hear the word. Again, do the word. Hear the word. Do the word. What does that look like? You open, your, you open your Bible in the mornings, you're reading, and the Holy Spirit says, that's true right there. Did you know that? that? That's true. And the Spirit just ministers to you, and you say, yes, it is true. And you affirm that. You hear it. You affirm that. And then you make the choice to step out and act on that. You act upon the promises of God. Hear the word, do the word. James says, don't be a hearer and not a doer because you deceive yourself. So we hear and we know it's real faith because our actions reveal that. It's a challenge. Love those who are in need, those who are isolated, those who need somebody to just come into their life. But the power and the strength to do that comes from being in your word, being with Jesus in prayer, seeking him on a regular basis. Let's pray. Father God, we admit sometimes we make things way too complicated, and we liked lots of religion and lots of structures that are unnecessary and things that we put into our life that make us feel better about ourselves, and the reality is that we need your word. It's our daily bread. We need prayer to talk with you and get your take on our life and our events of our day, and the things that we're being challenged with. And we know the only way we can experience that contentment and that joy in our life is when we do give it to you and and, and trust you and keep our eyes upon you and obey the simple promises of Scripture that you give us. God, help us to be about that. Help us to be a church that really, truly impacts the culture and cares for our body and makes a difference because we hear from you every day. And we want to do what you call us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.